I call this the exploding doormat syndrome. You'll allow cultural norms and other people to just walk over you, walk over you. You'll betray yourself, betray yourself, betray yourself until you've just hit your limit. And then you're like, get out of my life. You explode, fractures relationships, everything. That's what happened with my family of origin 30 years ago. Like everything exploded and all the relationships with me ended. And for a long time, I thought that was the penalty for being yourself, but I wanted to be myself anyway. So the idea is cave early. When somebody says to you, I really, really want you to do this for me. And you really don't want to just go, yeah, no, no. Don't wait until you're about to explode. I'm Emily McDowell. And I am Holly Whitaker. And this is Quitted, a podcast about quitting. Mm. Good morning. Mm. <laughs> that noise. What was that? I don't know. I don't know, but I, I liked it. I'm just I'm in a I'm in a mental place now where all I can do is just make noises. I'm like my <laughs> <Ew>. words are <laughs> I mean if we just communicated in animal noises, it wouldn't not make sense. <laughs> it wouldn't not make sense. I read an article the other day that I can't find, and I'm wondering if I dreamt it because I went to go send it to someone, that um, fungi, they figured out that fungi communicate in a language similar to English. Huh. Yeah. I, that feels a little like... And that feels a colonizer. little like, are we, I was right, like <laughs> the Eurocentrism, like really it's English, you know, it's not, it's not Mandarin, mm. like, are we sure? <laughs> it's very suspicious. <laughs> sure though. Okay. Um, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, animal noises and fungi English. It's like the Washington Monument, you know. Uh, In what way? Like it's a huge dick? What do you mean? Yeah. Like oh, it just yeah. happens uh-huh. to look like a dick? Sure. It's just like, here, let's put this big <laughs> dick here. It's a natural <laughs> universal symbol <laughs> of power. <laughs> yes. Uh, anyway. Um, okay. So uh, you quit Today, your job. Oh, my God. Yeah. So I had a week. I mean, I'm I, not shocked. Um, no, I know. We're, none of us are shocked, right? I have a podcast. Well, no, I mean, I'm it. not shocked because I'm your friend and I've been privy to like <laughs> <laughs> right. knowing this, this. This thing that's been going on. Yeah. So, yeah. So this episode, so this is funny. You know, we recorded this episode yesterday and yesterday happened to be the day after nine months of discussion and planning and negotiation and everything that the sale of my company was finalized and the press release went out and we told all of our team that my brand was purchased by Union Square Publishing, which is a division of Barnes & Noble. So that means that I am now unemployed. Um, I am... (laughs) gonna be i'm gonna be a consultant welcome to the club <laughs> there's uh, a party in the back i'm gonna be i'm gonna be a consultant um for a year helping with the transition and and doing some right doing some creative consulting and i didn't mean to do air quotes about that but i, w- I know I was, but I was it's gonna the be helping with the transition feels like a <laughs> i love telling I know, myself that I know. i'm gonna be a it's, consultant <laughs> well um so, no, I'm so sorry. I think it's I'm such a dick. You are going to be a consultant. I am going to be a consultant. <laughs> yes. And that role to me feels good. And yeah. it was a last minute thing. I was going to remain an employee up until a week or so, not even a few days, not even a few days before ago, the yeah. sale closed. And then some things fell apart at the last minute. And um, I started to really realize that if I was choosing to stay as an employee, it felt in my body like not what I wanted. And it would have been a safety decision more than a like a like a security safety programming, oh my God, I'm afraid decision and not a decision mm-hmm. that's aligned with what I actually want which as we talk about in this episode are with Martha are the universal things that people want, which are peace and freedom and love. And 
it felt to me like it was time. You know, this was a, this was, it's interesting, this was a decision that was made. So I started, I, I sold most of my brand four and a half years ago to Knock Knock, which is another company in our space that's been, for the last four and a half years, we've been one company called the Who's There Group that was these two brands, M and Friends and Knock Knock. And Knock Knock's founder was my business partner, our CEO, and she has been doing this for 20 years. And she owned 88% of the company. And so, you know, it was her choice. She came to the conclusion that she wanted to sell and which is a completely valid conclusion to come to after 20 years. And at first I was really opposed and really upset and really shaken by this. And this was last summer that we had this conversation. And so I had a lot of time to really sit with this and process it and think about it. And I ultimately came to the understanding that this was the right move for me as well. And yeah, just that it's that it is terrifying. And this episode opens with Martha, who is like, you know, a personal hero of mine, right? Like saying, oh my God, I love your work so much. Um, I want you to know, you know, I wanted to introduce you. This is my partner, Rowan. Rowan, say hi. Rowan and I are the hugest fans of your cards. We collect them. We only send your cards. We have, you know, hundreds of them at home. (laughs) Rowan is like (laughs) been this huge champion of your work. And I was like, and it was so amazing. It was so bittersweet to hear that. It was so bittersweet because I was like, and I was kind of stunned and, and and you'll hear it because it was the first time I said it out loud. I was like, oh my God, thank you. And also, um, I don't do that anymore. I don't do that anymore because my company was bought today. And Martha's like, what? You know, <laughs> like, it was definitely, uh, it, it's a, uh, it was a really, it was really bittersweet and um, surreal. Very surreal. And also, and, uh, like, yeah. meta because, like, we're here to talk to her about her book about being in integrity and making really hard decisions that cost you things that are important to you. And I think if I also may, just to co- make a couple comments on what oh, you, you may, you know, uh, <laughs> having known, thank you, having known you and been through this with you. So you and I started talking about doing this podcast last April. Mm-hmm. You weren't going to quit your company. I don't think. Mm-hmm. And no, like, no, no, no. I had no intention of doing that then. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And Watching you go through the process of letting go, right, was has also not just been because of safety and security. It's also been good girl shit. And I think that like mm. I which I suffered from as well, which is like it's my responsibility to other people to suffer. Yes. And to yes, yes, do yes. things I hate because if I don't, then I am a selfish or whatever. And so I've mm-hmm. also seen you go through letting go this idea of like what your obligation, what your contract is, yes. what your obligation is to like to honestly, people now that you're on the other side of it are happy or like at least, you know, like there's it's not as I think I think the allegiance you felt toward people and the idea of like how much you were going to let people down, including the general public, right, mm-hmm. is phenomenal. Like it's phenomenal how much that that can be built up in our minds of who we owe our lives to. Do you yeah. agree? does any of that hit? Oh, I, Am I making oh, it too absolutely many? Okay. hits. No, it completely hits. And I think that I've learned so much over the last ten years of having employees and being you know, I started out being so deeply over-responsible for their lives, like in a really unhealthy way. You know, I didn't Mm -hmm. understand how to be a boss, what the difference was between being a boss and being a friend. And I really, really wanted to be both. And that's a really hard needle to thread. Like you can, but it's a different role. And when I say like not a friend, it doesn't mean don't treat people well, don't respect people, don't like love them. But like, I really, really struggled with drawing that line. And I have felt over the years, a sense of like that, that has, has been one of the hardest pieces for me about having a company is like how to navigate that piece. And I have learned a lot and 
I really, whatever I do next, which I don't know what it will be at all, a lot, you know, people have been asking me, the first question that people ask is, are you going to start another company? And the answer is no, (laughs) (laughs) absolutely not. For many, many reasons, right? Like I can (laughs) talk all day about why I won't start another company. But one of them is because I actually learned that I don't enjoy being a boss. Um, yeah. I don't enjoy it. I don't I d- like don't it. don't enjoy as in it like <laughs> guts me. <laughs> yeah, as in it's soul destroying for me. Um, and again, like it can be like my like team has been are, are some of the best people in the world. Like it has nothing to do with like how good your yeah. staff is. And it also it's doesn't just, mean you are a bad boss. I also want to mm-hmm. say that too. I think like one of my one of my former employees wrote me after listening to my episode and said, look, you were imperfect, but you were a great boss and I loved working for you. And the fact that this was not where I lit up and where my skills really came into play and like where it made me want to get out of bed and like live and work doesn't equal bad at or like, you know, problematic or any of that. It just means... Not for you, you know? Yeah. Not for you. Not how you want to spend your time. And there are people that are born to like be managers. Oh my gosh. And it's a and it is a huge skill set, you know, figuring out what motivates each person. And this person loves change and this person hates change. And how you know, how do you motivate different people with different things and get them excited? And it's a and that's really, really tough. And I so admire people who love to do that. And I've learned about myself that I don't like to. And when I started, I thought, I'm going to love this. Like I had a... <laughs> and be great at I, it. And be so good at it. I had an idea about myself that I would be... Um, like, because I'm good at having friends, I was like, oh, naturally, I'm going to be a great <laughs> boss. And it's actually a completely different thing. I think thing. it's why you're a bad boss. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, so, or not a bad anyway. boss, but why. Um, first of all, a couple of things. One, you're, you know, it's been a year or more since I've been through what I went through and I don't really have a wide enough lens to see myself from that. And I think it's been like for you a day. What I will say is that the reason that we did this podcast was to create space for us to, I mean, I, like I, the closer I get to like, I just don't give a fuck anymore, the the better it gets, I think. And I think to me, this is this like thing that allows you to move closer to, you know, like, and well, into your, into your integrity. And I don't mean that like you've been out of integrity, but I just, you know, I think like, yeah. And I think it's, yeah, it's who I am now. Right. Like I was living a version of myself that made sense for 10 years ago, me. And 10 years ago, me wanted a lot of really different things, you know, and she was great. And like, I love her, but I'm not, I'm not her anymore. No. To me, it's so exciting. I love, I this is the worst part and this is also the best part. And um, I don't know. I just want to say I've been with you through a pretty fucked up year and I just am, I'm so proud of you and I'm so proud of you. Mm, and thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I loved watching you handle yourself through this. Oh, I so appreciate that. It was um <laughs> definitely felt like being blindfolded, like finding my way down a hallway that, you know, was also underwater and and in space. Like filled it was just knives. filled with knives, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and flesh eating bacteria. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was de- it's definitely, you know, and and I think for me I know that being sort of forced into reinvention in whatever way that looks like. And I don't necessarily mean reinvention and then like, ta-da, here's my new thing. But just Mm -hmm. in reconception of who I am, what's important to me, how I want to live, how I want to be, how I'm going to make money, you know, all of that is terrifying. And it's also an opportunity. And I and I I genuinely mean that. I genuinely mean it's an opportunity because I was living out the extensions of choices that I made many, many years ago that were not by any means the wrong choices for me then. But me now, 
is in a different place. Yeah. So we'll do an episode where we give an update, I think, on both both of our original episodes because we've both made some changes and and we'll talk about that in more detail. But today we have Martha back. We got to get coached by Martha Beck on our podcast, which was pretty fucking rad. I was sitting there through this entire episode and just (laughs) like feeling like it was uh, like a power session and it changed my life. Uh, This honestly, this conversation changed my life. I left it and I went out and was like, I'm going to make some changes. And I did that same day. (laughs) I think Martha is pretty good at that. And I think she's pretty good at facilitating that. And, um, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm, talk about I people am, that just don't give a fuck. That was like the thing that comes across in uh, how she carries herself is just like, I don't fucking care what you think of me. I don't. Or, I literally <laughs> don't care. And mm-mm. our society is horrible. So why should I work to uphold it? Like, yeah. let's blow this shit up. And I just, I, I, yeah, I think she's really wonderful. Yeah. Before we get into the episode, just a reminder that we are a self-supported podcast. We make this podcast ourselves with our own money and time and nobody pays us nobody asked us to do this um we (laughs) um no one asked (laughs) (laughs) we don't have ads we don't have a we don't have a network and we make this we have nothing we make this with the help of our patrons aka our listeners you guys who um have chosen to financially support us. And we so appreciate all of you. And if you are not a patron and you would like to support us in making this podcast, you can go to patreon.com forward slash quitted and become a patron there. You can also support us in a lot of non-financial ways. You can leave a review or rate us. Um, on We're on all the podcast platforms. Tell your friends about us, share us on social media, you know, getting a podcast out into the world is not an easy thing, it turns out. So we appreciate all of the help that we can get from all of you. And with that, Martha Beck. Martha Beck. Martha Beck, welcome to Quitted. Thank you so much, Emily. It's so fun to be here. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, oh, my pleasure. We are big fans and mm. um, just really appreciate you. Well, as I was just telling Emily, and then Holly joined us, we have a whole stash of Emily McDowell cards that we've been using in our family for years. We didn't even know that we would ever meet you, but you're our favorite card person. That is so <laughs> nice to hear, and I so appreciate that. And um it's so interesting also that you say that because this is the first time that I'm talking about this publicly because the press release is coming out today. But um, I, my company was sold to Barnes & Noble. And what? Uh, yes, my business partner, who who's Knock Knock's founder, who's our sister brand, owns the vast majority of the company. And she decided it was time to retire. And for me, I am no longer employed as of wow. Friday. And... Um, I am embarking on a new journey. I'm going to be a consultant um, for a, a year. And I've been, you know, the last four years for me has been working on building a team to essentially do what I do, you know, and it's been this process of what we call replacing myself, which has been very strange um, and interesting <laughs> and, you know, both g- good and hard. So it's uh, it's really bittersweet because I love hearing that. And also I am now passing the the card torch on to the next generation of people after probably writing 700 of them in my life. Wow. Card torch is a really unfortunate phrase. It sounds very flammable. It really (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean, you don't, you can't, you can't stop change. And we all have lifespans long enough now to live many dreams, not just yeah. one or two. So good yeah. for you. Congratulations. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you. And I'm sure we'll talk about this kind of a little bit more in the context of some of the questions that we want to ask you. Um, but I think we wanted to start with, so we both read The Way of Integrity um, and loved it. 
And twice. Um, I loved it. Yeah, twice. Oh, thank uh-huh. you. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and we wanted to have you on because, you know, this podcast is about quitting. And mm. you have quit so many external elements of your life over the years. Like yes, I have. your religion, your marriage, heterosexuality, your career as an academic, so many my family of origin, my, yeah, my mm-hmm. home, my job, my, yeah, everything. Everything. Mm. And you've written and talked about all of that over the years. And then your most recent book, The Way of Integrity, is about quitting the underlying stuff that ties all of these things together. Yeah. So, yeah. So what that is, and a lot of your cards address this, we're born knowing who we are and we have a certain personality and and who knows, maybe a destiny. I believe in destiny. And we know it as infants, but before we can even talk, we start experiencing social pressures like smile more, cry less, do, do this faster, whatever, be interested in this, not that. And we immediately start caving to social pressure because that's how we're designed, which is good. It keeps us in, you know, it it allows us to grow to the point where we can take care of ourselves without being thrown out in the cold. But it also means that we can lose touch with what our real nature is because culture comes in, pushes us away from our nature, and we don't even realize it's happened, except that nature never gives up without a fight. And there's always this pull, this yearning, various kinds of suffering that say, this isn't what I'm supposed to be. This isn't what I'm supposed to do. So when we lose ourselves like that, we lose integrity, which simply means to be one thing intact and whole. And so we split and integrity is always calling us back to say, come on, find your real self and be yourself, your true self and nothing but yourself. So that's what the book is about. Yeah. And it's, and it's wonderful. And can you talk a little bit about your definition of culture, of what culture is, and and like how and why cultures are designed to control our behavior? Yeah, um, I was trained as a sociologist, and so it's all about looking at the way humans influence each other. They say that when there are two people in a room, culture is the third guest at the table. So culture could be like if you have a, a couple they will create a little culture between the two of themselves with little catchphrases and rules about what you do and don't do that it's just for them. Every family has its own particular culture. Every job, workplace has its particular culture. Every nationality, every religion, every ethnicity, they all have cultures, which just simply means the way people agree to interact with each other. And we have this incredible ability to do that, which allowed us to take over the planet, but also makes us very, very vulnerable to choosing the culture, whatever our culture is, choosing the culture's norms and expectations over our true desires. That's where we run into trouble. Mm, Yeah. How did you come to this understanding that it's all about the culture versus nature? Like, what led you to to write this book, and, and how is that through line for you? Well, I seem to be destined to be not suited to the culture that I, uh, to any culture that I've ever found. <laughs> so I grew up um, in Mormonism, like the heart of Mormonism, and uh, just didn't have the personality of a good Mormon girl. I was, you know... I was a tomboy. I was a rebel. But I tried to like tamp it down and be a good Mormon girl. Then when I was 17, I went off to Harvard, which was like the diametric opposite, right? The ultra rationalist, logical, no magical thinking. And I was like, whoa, what? (laughs) So then I just said, okay, that's what I'll do. I'll do that. Ah." And I would go back to Utah and be a good Mormon girl. Then I'd go back to Harvard and be an intellectual materialist. and, And I felt the split. I felt kind of crazy and off balance, but it wasn't until I'd I'd gotten married like a good Mormon girl does at 20 to another Mormon Harvard student, and we had a baby, and then our second child was prenatally diagnosed with Down syndrome, Mm -hmm. and um, suddenly I was looking at a choice, and it was late in the pregnancy, about six months in, and I'm very pro-choice, but the question here was not did I want to have a baby, it was what kind of a baby is okay to have? And what I realized is that this baby would never make it at Harvard. <laughs> and and the, the doctors at the health center there said it was like a malignant tumor 
I should let them take it out. Um, people back in Utah were like, you'll get extra stars in your crown if you have the bit. And I was just, they all sounded <laughs> like idiots to me. And for the first time, I just pulled back and said to even these older, wiser people, back off. I had to figure out what was right for me. And for me at that particular time, I felt really bonded to the baby. I'd been having very strange experiences from the moment I was, I found out I was pregnant. I started having flat out psychic experiences, which really threw a wrench into the whole Harvard materialist thing. And also wasn't what the Mormons told me it should be like. So I was really curious and I already loved the baby and I decided to go on with the pregnancy. And when that happened, I basically felt like I had left culture completely in making this decision. Martha, and yeah, I, the thing that I you before you go past it, you said you wanted you wrote that you wanted to die in this period of time of coming to this decision you're talking about. Oh, yeah. You said that you wanted you hoped that the baby made the decision for you, that yes. you could not that you would rather die than give up the life that you knew it and what you knew this was going to cost you. Yeah. Can you talk a bit about that and this whole like leaving culture piece and like that symbolic of that and that feeling of that? Well, I remember going into my um, thesis advisor's office. I was in my PhD program, still at Harvard by then. I'd gotten a bachelor's and a master's. I was going for my PhD. And he sat me down and said, I guess if you have a thing against abortion, which I didn't, that's one thing, but you've got to put this child in an institution immediately after it's born or it will ruin your, your life. And I was like, I I'm not sure that's true. And he said, no, you're throwing your life away. And looking back five, six, 10 years in the future, I thought he was absolutely right. I was throwing my life away. The life I had known, which was all this striving to, to be more high achieving and you know, power, wealth, and status, all the markers of achievement in the culture. And that life sucked. The life I threw away was miserable. I was terrified to lose it. And I did. I did sometimes wish I would die or the baby would just spontaneously die because I was so terrified to give up my life as I had known it. Mm -hmm. But in retrospect, the life I threw away was actually torturing me. And the life I was able to have because I pulled away from the culture, that life has been amazing. So mm -hmm. that kind of set me free to always, always say, what you're telling me sounds very convincing to you, but I'm not sure it's true for me. And I'm not going to do what you say. Yeah. And there's something, right, you write about there's a biological imperative to stay the same, right? Like there's something in our brains that tells us yeah, that staying the same is safety. Yeah. Whenever we see anything unfamiliar, the amygdala, which is the little almond-shaped part of your brain that creates fear signals, even if you like go to a restaurant and there's a weird chandelier that looks like an octopus or something. If it, if it's unfamiliar enough, you'll have a jolt of fear. Like don't go there. That's not what we do. So our fear impulses keep us from uh, leaving what's familiar. And sometimes what's familiar is awful. Prisoners who get out of prison will sometimes commit crimes to get back into prison because life outside of prison is so unfamiliar that it's terrifying. So you have to be able to live through throwing away your life and, uh, long enough to build the next life that is waiting for you. Mm. How do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> what you do is you go completely inward. So we are raised to look outward, 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 outward. We look at, you know, how am I doing as opposed to other people on Instagram? How am I doing as opposed to my friends, as opposed to what my advisors or my boss says? So we're always looking externally. I was a Chinese major in my undergraduate days because I knew nothing about it and was horrible at it. But the guy I eventually married had a scholarship to go study Chinese in Asia. So I went and switched my major to Chinese. Talk about unfamiliar. Uh -huh. <laughs> so there I was and just fighting like a wildcat to just learn the language. But when I came back, I had absorbed a lot of Asian culture because I was very young. I was 20. And so Asian culture looks much more at inward turning for wisdom. Mm. 
So instead of looking around us at objective measures, like Asian philosophy looks inward and says, what is my subjective experience? Because that's my only reference for what is true. I could be completely fooled by external circumstances. I could, I could be dreaming all of this. The only thing I can be absolutely certain is that I'm aware. So I'm going to start with that awareness and then track what feels truest to me from the inside. And that it's, you don't have to go to Asia or learn Chinese to do that. All you have to do is be in a room full of people who are pressuring you to be something you don't want to be. I hate parties, cocktail parties. I hate big dance halls. Mm. I'm very introverted. Me too. Maybe other Same. people hate the woods and would rather be in a crowd, whatever it is. Look inside yourself to see what works for you and then go there. Do that. It's really, really simple. <laughs> and, and yet uh, people pay me so much money over the years to tell them, so if it feels really good, maybe do more of that and you'll get confidence in yourself. If it feels horrible, maybe do less of that and you'll get confidence in yourself. So simple, 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 but it's backwards from the way most Westerners think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, like, if I had to form the shortest possible summation of this book, um, of the way in of integrity, it would be like, if you want to be happy, stop lying. Perfect. Um, <laughs> there it is. And Gosh, great. That took if me you 350 be, pages. No. And, <laughs> but it's amazing. I mean, the way that you explain it, because not just lying to others, but lying to ourselves. And the thing that kind of blew my mind was, you talking about how we're so conditioned in the ways of self-deception that we don't even recognize when we're lying sometimes. And you give the example of being, of being, giving a talk and asking the audience, are you comfortable? And everybody's sitting in like an uncomfortable chair and everybody says, yeah, totally. Yep. And you and were like, say, are like, you? Like, no, you know, seriously. Yeah. Are you really comfortable? Tell, like, really, is everyone here comfortable? And they're like, yeah, what's wrong with you? Get, get on with the talk. And then I say, if you were home alone right now, how many of you would be sitting in exactly the position you're in at this moment? And no one raises a hand. And then I say, why not? And they have to think and think and think before they say, wait, I'm not really that comfortable, which is not, you know, discomfort isn't the problem. The problem is that repeatedly in clear daylight, they looked me in the eye and lied and lied and lied and didn't know that they knew they were lying. They knew they were uncomfortable with their bodies and they did not know it with their minds. So yes, the mind is a wonderful servant and a terrible master and we put it in the driver's seat all the time and then we live lives that are horribly uncomfortable. And sometimes we have to be pushed to the point of almost death before we'll say, maybe I could reconsider you know, and start living a life that, that makes us feel good. Yeah. I mean, you, you talk to, I think, about how these kinds of lies uh, over time can make us blind and deaf to our own pain. Oh, so yeah. So we don't realize that we have to leave dangerous things or dangerous people, and we put ourselves or keep ourselves in harm's way. Yeah. But we have an incredible, faithful, loyal ally called suffering. And its job is to make sure we do not lie ourselves completely away from the lives we're supposed to have. As we begin down, you know, marching down the road of what the society tells us to want, our true self is constantly kicking and screaming, that's not the right way for me. So you and I are both friends of Liz Gilbert. And, you know, there's a reason Eat, Pray, Love sold 13 million copies. It starts with a woman on the bathroom floor going, mm -hmm. I don't want to be married. And like, okay, if you weren't so constrained by culture, by what other people are thinking, you just sort of walk away. You know, say, you know what? I'm not, I don't want to be married. But instead, it has to get to the point of depression, despair, bad health. Um, I, I see six things that go on with people and get stronger as they move away from their true lives. And that the first one is just bad moods, feeling bad. Um, it could be anxiety, depression, whatever. The, the second one is bad health, which I suffered from horribly. It's very motivating to be in chronic pain for 12 years. Then it starts to affect your relationships. It starts to affect your career. 
it starts to um, make you self-medicate with, you know, drugs, food, alcohol. So these are all, I call them the dark wood of error syndrome after Dante's dark wood of error, where he just was wandering around at midlife, completely confused and lost. And that's how a lot of us feel because we've, we've wandered away from what he calls the true path and we're miserable and we cannot figure out why we're not comfortable. Mm. You say in this too, and this feels really familiar, um, cause I'm, I'm in that dark wood right now and I like, oh. I know it all, like I know where I'm at, I know what's going on. And it's interesting that I keep on running harder in the direction yeah. of the things that are not working. And when you talk yeah. about this, like the doubling down and it's, I, as you're saying this, you said a, a minute ago, it's so simple, you know, <laughs> does it feel good? No, don't do it. Right. You know, yeah. follow, but it's not that like it is, but it's not, you know, in that sense of like overthinking it. And I feel like I've just been in for a year and a half, like in the mud, just spinning my wheels and not doing the things that I know that would actually get me out of here. Mm -hmm. It's simple, but it's not easy. So, mm -hmm. you know, if I poked you really hard with a sharp object, you would know what hurt. If I moved the sharp object, you would know that the pain stopped. It's, I mean, our, our ability to detect suffering is very sophisticated and it really never gives up. The problem is that we're so trained by culture to cling to what people want us to do because we're as babies and children and even as adults throughout our lives, we are completely dependent for our lives and happiness on, on inclusion, on belonging. So everything that you are doing that's not making you happy, you have probably started doing because the people around you approved of it. And that means that when you stop doing that or start doing something else, they will disapprove. Mm. And this is where it's simple, but it's terrifying. And that makes it feel complicated because we think we have to manipulate all the, the personalities around us. We have to manipulate culture into still approving of us. That, that really peaked for me when I was 29. Um, I'd gone back to Utah after my child with Down syndrome was born because I didn't want any of the people gave me weird looks at Harvard a lot after that. So I was finishing my dissertation and I went back to Utah where I wouldn't be considered a complete and total loser for having had this baby with Down syndrome. And it was there that I decided to try to stop lying at all. I made a New Year's resolution not to lie for a whole year, not once, not in any way, because I was so desperate to find my way to what was true. I just, it was all up in the air for me at the time. And when you start telling the absolute truth, it's like the archaeology of self. It turns out that the only lies I was telling were polite lies, like, oh, I'm fine. That looks mm -hmm. nice, whatever. Mm -hmm. Those, I wasn't <laughs> a big liar, but the little lies I was telling, I'm fine here, this is great, I like my job, whatever, they were enough to poison my whole existence. And then, so I started telling more and more truth and getting down to deeper and deeper issues. And then I started having intense, intrusive flashbacks of being sexually abused by my father, who was a big cheese in the Mormon church. And this is the most Mormon community on the face of the planet. And so when that happened, it was either you know, I tried to make it go away. <laughs> mm -hmm. I really did. People would tell me, just let it go. And I'm like, I can't let it go. I don't have it. It has me. This experience happened to me, like telling a five-year-old, just let that go. No, it's happening. So I, in the end, decided to, you know, claim my truth. And that meant family of origin, um, extreme conflict followed by total severance of all relationship with my parents, my seven siblings, and all their wives and my nieces and nephews and everything, and all, every friend I'd made in high school up to college because they were all Mormon. Yeah, I left the church and I started uh, doing research on sexual abuse to see what was going on in the community. And that is not a way to be popular in Utah. <laughs> no. <laughs> and it was really hard and it was really horrible and it was really, really, really better than continuing to lie. Mm. Did you know that right away? No, which? Know no that what? it was. Know that it was 
less horrible than continuing to lie. Mm-mm. I didn't know that immediately. I was in so much pain that I was kind of out of control for a while. When you undergo a big trauma like that, parts of the self literally split off. And sometimes you just, ha- you don't have a complete memory of what happened because you're being protected by the way the psyche works. And this is the extreme example of fragmentation and division that happens even when we are pressured to wear nice shoes or whatever. It goes all the way to complete compartmentalization, sometimes even um, identity disorder where people have different personalities. I remembered the tips of the iceberg and then wham, when I told enough truth, the whole thing just blew up. And that's what will happen to a trauma response that's hidden. Because while it's in there, it's like toxic waste. It's constantly putting out chemicals and and uh, fumes that torture and cripple you. And then when it comes out, it wants to come out. And I felt quite helpless for a while. It was just happening. But I was clinging to my New Year's resolution. And I got a therapist and I said, I made a New Year's resolution. I would never lie. And my therapist said, your problem is that you keep your New Year's resolutions. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, it was horrible and it was better. But in, in the part of me that was doing the healing, which wasn't the conscious part, knew that it was better. The wisdom of our psyches knows what it's doing. Mm. Yeah, it's a it's so interesting like thinking about people pleasing as lying because that's true and it's also for me personally a super challenging truth because like you said belonging is safety and especially like you know I grew up looking outside my family for love and for safety mm. and so the urge to people please is really deep and it comes from a need to survive it comes from a need to like just be protected at all costs and yeah. you know be fit in right like fit in somewhere Absolutely, yeah And like, how do you, if you want to undo this belief, like, where do you start with that? Well, I have a question for you. Did you not write a card that said something like, please let me be the first person to punch anyone who says everything happens for a reason? I sure did. (laughs) That is true. (laughs) That is not a socially compliant statement. (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) what made you write that card? Oh, that's such an interesting question. Um, Because the socially compliant statements that people make when you're sick aren't helpful and they're bullshit. You know, like this, it's a lot, the lie of there is a way to make this better immediately. Right. Like there is a there is a shift in your thinking if you have been if you're grieving or if you've been diagnosed with cancer or whatever, that there is an immediate shift in your thinking that can make this better and that it is up to someone else to tell you that Mm -hmm. that it's going to be someone else's job for you to decide when, you know, like when that can happen for yourself. So and as you so accurately said, it's bullshit. So Mm -hmm. there's a part of you. Ernest Hemingway said he had an automatic bullshit detector. And we all have one. And social compliance takes us to the point where we finally go, this is bullshit. Mm -hmm. This is just bullshit. And the moment you know that, your integrity requires you to act on it. So you write a card that says, Mm. I'm going to punch people for that. And and everybody goes, yeah, I want me that card. (laughs) Because everybody feels that way. I mean, it's, it's amazing what people can go through and still maintain that truth detector. I call it um, the inner teacher, the sense of integrity. Uh, And we know that people are bullshitting us, but we say, okay, yeah, you're right. Everything happens for a reason. I'm sure the fact that I lost all my limbs to a flesh-eating bacteria is a blessing and not a curse. (laughs) Like, And agreeing at that point in that way feels like murdering your own soul. And there comes a point where the soul just will not have it anymore. And that's why suffering is a gift. It'll get us to that point. I have a question. Mm-hmm. What if you take that too far? I feel like I have a bullshit detector. And I feel like almost to my detriment, I am consistently – like I, it's hard for me to make friends. It's hard for me to date. I mean, I'm unlikable in a lot of different ways. Um, 
I will just cut people out, you know, when like it's gone too. like, I, I am very quick to just be like, absolutely fucking not. This is bullshit. And can it be ta- like, it could be taken to a anti, almost antisocial or also just like a rigid point, right? Where mm-hmm. you just mm-hmm. are telling the, like the truth without considering, like without being playable, right? Yeah. And yet a minute ago, you said it was really hard to act on your integrity because you are compliant. <laughs> so what you, I, I call this the exploding doormat syndrome. You'll allow cultural norms and other people to just walk over you, walk over you. You'll betray yourself, betray yourself, betray yourself mm. until you just hit your limit. And then you're like, get out of my life. You explode, fractures relationships, everything that's what happened with my family of origin 30 years ago. Like everything exploded and all the relationships with me ended. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, I thought that was the penalty for being yourself, but um, I wanted to be myself anyway. So the idea is cave early. When somebody says to you, I really, really want you to do this for me. And you really don't want to just go early. No. Don't wait until you're about to explode because that is, Uh, that it can be quite destructive. There's nothing wrong with it if it gets you out of a dungeon, but it's, there's, it's easier just to open the lock and walk out. And you do that by saying to someone who wants you to go line dancing when you have COVID and you're like, I don't know. No, thanks. No, I will not be doing that. <laughs> well, it's funny because the thing I'm thinking about is like a particular story with one of my friends who I let borrow my car for a weekend and they kept it for three months. And I was like, that's okay. And then it, you know, months later exploded after multiple things happening like that. Where like my, <laughs> my sister was like, stop being friends with this person. That feels more exceptional than I think like what you said, like take like point taken and yes, very true. And I also think I wonder at what point, if we're just all running around telling the truth all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Society would break down. (laughs) Yes, it absolutely freaking would. And I love that. I think the society sucks. I mean, it's sexist, (sighs) racist. The power of the few over the many Dictators and despots have ruled it forever. It's a patriarchal pyramid. Smash it, at least in your own life. Get the hell out of it. And you don't have to explode. You just say, I mean, when did you start to be upset that this person had your car? No, I mean, it was like I started to be upset way before that and mo- over yes. multiple things, right? It there was not like there was, you know, whatever. So, yeah. And I didn't act. I didn't act on that. And I think it's as you're saying it, I'm thinking it's interesting because the, the things that are keeping me stuck in this current state, it's not what other people think. It's what I stand to lose. And, and maybe that is what other people. Um, Why would you lose something if you did what you want? And said what you mean. Well, if I were to, Emily and I talked about this last week, I, I want to just stop and fucking disappear and go right, you know? Like, I want to sell my house. I want to, like, move the fuck out of New York. I want to go back to California. I want to stop doing social media. I want to stop being so, like, in front of people as I'm going through something that's just heartbreaking and tragic, and I want to write. And that's, but, like, I stand, what do I stand to lose? Like, well, yeah. I mean, first of all, it's, like, this I this isn't the first time I have just said sell it all burn it all so mm-hmm. I stand to potentially increase my tendency to blow my life up mm-hmm. I also stand to lose my income <laughs> I also stand to lose my ability to communicate my 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 microphone you know and and these are all terrifying and and also just this version of my life so yeah yeah this version of your life, which sounds awful. kind of awful, frankly. It's awful. If you I want to get the it. fuck away from it, it's like, <laughs> boy, like I have a shit sandwich here. God, I hope I never lose it. You know, <laughs> it's and and it's just the fear of the unknown. I remember sitting once in a group of people, and this woman said she were she was in the army, and she said she hated it, hated it, but it was only ten years until she could retire and get mm. her pension or whatever they Mm -hmm. call it in the military. And she said, I said, well, do it. 
And she said, uh, no, I have to stay in there for my pension. I said, 10 years is a lot of your life. You could be dead before then. She's like, there's no way for me to make money except to be in the army. And I said, how many people, there were like 200 people there. How many people here can think of a way she could make a living besides being in the army? No one raised their hand. They were like, no, she has to stay. And then I said, how many of you are in the army? <laughs> and only she raised her hand. And I'm like, how many of you make money? And everyone, like, we have an infinity of possibilities laid out before us. And in order to hang on to our shit sandwich, we will just close our eyes to any other opportunity. Also, you've got the exploding doormat pattern, which is really typical for people, this will surprise you, who are very compliant and agreeable. You come across as an explosive angry person, but it's only, as you said, because you've been harboring resentment silently sometimes for years. So when it comes out, it's violent. So don't jump off cliffs. What I did at 29, I would not recommend. I don't recommend it in my book. It's like jumping off a cliff with a bed sheet, hoping you'll land softly. It's crazy. <laughs> what I recommend is one degree turns. So if you're flying a plane 10,000 miles and every half hour you turn it one degree north, you won't even notice it turning, but you'll end up in a completely different place. So what you could do in this particular example, take half an hour out of every day, or if that's too much, 15 minutes and start writing. Take like for 15 minutes, stop doing all the stuff you hate, put up a picture of California and write for 15 minutes. And then you'll, what happens as we start to feed, like Liz, when she wrote Eat, Pray, Love, she was blowing up her life, leaving her marriage. And she found she had one thin thread of something that brought her joy. She's told me this. She was so depressed across the board. She was completely miserable, but she liked Italian. And so she threw away her entire life. And I, I was talking to someone from Australia who said they... Um, their friends were criticizing Eat, Pray, Love. One of them said, you know, she can just leave her marriage and go off around the world. Well, I'd have to sell my house to do that. And another one said, but she did sell her house to yeah. do that. <laughs> and she just put, she started going to Italian classes in the evening. And that was her little seed that she could yeah. grow. And from that, she grew this incredible life. Yeah. And that's what happens when we're willing to just take some time every day and then a little more and a little more and a little more and subtract what we hate and add a bit of what we really want to do. You've been listening to Quitted, a podcast about quitting, hosted by Holly Whitaker and Emily McDowell. Our music is by Michael Blumenfeld. Our sound engineer is Adam Day and our producer is Kathleen Kissich. Quitted is made possible by us and by our listeners. To support the show, join our patron community at patreon.com forward slash quitted. <laughs>